Our reading this evening is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10, and that's pages 1165 in in the church Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body... I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking this evening at this question, being surprised when suffering comes. I know we all realise that statistically... Things will go wrong in our life and of course ultimately we will all die. And so we know that, but our default is often to think, I am invincible, whoever, I can't remember who said that, but he said it like that. And the default is that, well, yeah, okay, I get the point, Clive, but it's a long way off. But we never know. And so it's good to be prepared. And whilst this talk is not exhaustive, and we're just um, looking at some parts of the question of suffering, I hope it'll be helpful, whether it's now that you need that, or whether it's sometime, as it inevitably will be, in the future. Well, suffering is very common. If you have a copy of our church directory, which contains over 600 names in it, um, and that when you look at it, and I looked at just a couple of pages chosen at random, it's clear to me that some form of suffering is very prevalent within our church community, whether among members themselves or their extended families, suffering is all too evident, including those with family members who have committed suicide. I can think of at least three. A couple whose daughter, an elderly couple now, whose daughter's husband left her for another woman just after their first child was born. And then 12 years later, that fine Christian mother died of cancer. 
those with mental illnesses which torment the mind, those with long-term degenerative diseases, whether of the mind like dementia or of the body which severely restricts their mobility or both, those living with cancer, those widowed young, those with loved ones in prison, those entangled in unhelpful relationships, those whose adult Christian children have gone walkabout from the Christian faith that they were brought up in, those trapped by addictions, those facing death. So suffering is very common. And uh, to varying degrees, it's common, and it shouldn't really surprise it surprise us if it comes our way. Tim Keller, whose book we're uh, plugging uh, for eight quid, which is an absolute bargain. Um, Tim Keller is the minister of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And uh, he's a very humble guy. He's a very genuine guy. And um, I commend that to you. They're all available for sale. We've got quite a bunch of them. Um, A good investment. Well, he says this when interviewed about that book that we're plugging. He says, Most cultures, unlike our own, expect suffering as inevitable and see it as a means of strengthening and enriching us. Our secular culture, on the other hand, is perhaps the worst in history at helping its members face suffering. Every other culture says the meaning of life is something beyond this world and life. And it may be going to heaven to live with God and your loved ones forever, which is the Christian hope. It may be escaping the cycle of reincarnation in order to enter eternal bliss, the Buddhist view. It may be uh, escaping, sorry, that was the Hindu view, this is the Buddhist view, escaping the illusion of the world to go into the all-soul of the universe. You just get sort of sucked into the, uh, the big one. Or it may be that, like Zeno, the Greek thinker, it's all a question of living a moral, virtuous, honourable life, even in the, def- in the face of defeat and gloom. It's the kind of grin and bear it approach, and then that's it. Or it may be that you, your hope lies in your descendants, that somehow or other, from your gene pool, although it'll get diluted down the generations, who knows, you might even have a Bart Simpson look-alike as a descendant of yours one day, or whatever your dream is for one of your great-grandchildren. Who knows? In each case, suffering, though painful, can actually help you reach your life goal and complete your life story. But in secular culture, the meaning of life is to be free to choose what makes you happy in life. And suffering destroys that. 
And so in the secular view, suffering can have no meaning at all. It can't be a chapter in your life story. It is just an interruption or even the end of your life story. It's not that these other views, by the way, which do help some people in some parts of the world and at certain times in history, cope. It's not saying that they're necessarily true. They may well have a kernel of insight that corresponds to reality. But Christianity has a much more plausible explanation. In contrast, for example, to Islamic fatalism, Christianity acknowledges that suffering is overwhelming. In contrast to Buddhism, suffering is real. In contrast to Hindu karma, suffering is often unfair. And in contrast to secularism, suffering is meaningful. Keller says, there is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. While other worldviews, he says, lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. So let's have a look uh, then at why there is suffering. What does the Bible have to say about it, its origins, its causes and purposes, and also how it suggests that we should respond to it. So why suffering? There is. Keller's book is a very good... I haven't actually read all of it. I've only read a bit of it, but I know enough that it'll be good. But um, his... See, so... um, I do that, but, um, but books on suffering, as our little blurb says, sometimes come into the category of philosophical, theological, and pastoral and practical. His is actually all three, which is a very rare combination. But it starts off with this very common philosophical question, which is not difficult to understand, by the way. This is it. Why is there suffering? There is this conundrum. If God is all-powerful, which he is and, is, and if suffering happens, which it does, how can God be good if he allows suffering? Or put the other way round, if you want to claim God is good and yet suffering happens, he can't be all-powerful. So you're left with a choice if you set it up like that. You either have a God who is a sadistic sadist or you have, um, who's all-powerful but sadistic, or you have a nice old boy who's God, but he's ineffectual because he's powerless. Neither sound like a very good option. A Christian answer is that God is both all-powerful and all-loving, but how come? Well, he wants the love he pours out on us human beings in our preservation and all the blessings of this life, to be reciprocated by us. He wants to be in a loving relationship with us. But love to be love has to be freely given. Love which is the product of coercion, which of course it isn't, is not love at all. You cannot force love. 
Ovid, a Roman poet who was a contemporary of Jesus, once wrote in one of his odes this little observation as he was trying to find a life partner. Everybody should remember this. Those I chase flee from me. Those who chase me, I flee from. So if love has to be freely entered into, it means that we must have a meaningful choice not to have to enter into it. In other words, we can make the wrong choice and adverse consequences may well happen. You see, suffering is the price we pay for the freedom of choice. Well, some biblical explanations. How does suffering originate? Well, um, Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, were faced with a choice. They could either do what God had hoped for them, which was reciprocate his love through obedience, or they could go walk about and do their own thing and disobey. They could stay with him as created, or they could venture outside of the relationship. They sadly opted out, and that is what we call original sin. Original because it was the first one that human beings committed. And as a consequence, their relationship with God was fractured. And with it too, their relationship within themselves and with each other and, in fact, with the creation which they had been appointed by God to manage and steward on his behalf. And things changed. And they were excluded from the presence of God and death entered their lives. Of course, death had been a feature of the rest of creation before Homo sapiens emerged. But it wasn't for them. They could have lived forever with God, presumably like uh, like Enoch and Elijah. They'd have been beamed up to heaven. When they disobeyed, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, exiled from the presence of God, that they did not immediately die as he said they would if they had disobeyed because they were exiled from him. They didn't. And that was because God was being merciful. He was giving them a reprieve, giving them time to come to their senses and to do a turnaround and return to him. You see, in the Bible, death is um, understood in three ways. There's spiritual death. The relationship with God and human beings is dead. It doesn't exist. Then there's physical death, which in their case was delayed, so they could come to their senses and repent and return. Physical death is when our body is separated from our soul, the essential us. And eventually there is eternal death when body and soul are separated from God forever. Unless, of course, they do use the time 
left to them here on earth to repent of their sins and turn to him and be granted eternal life. So love to be love has to be freely given, which means it might not be. And the very first human beings made the wrong call, and so all of us subsequently have lived at variance from God's designed possibilities for us. Fractured relationships are not just bilateral between God and the individual, but they are multilateral between human beings themselves. And somehow between human beings and the natural world. It's as if a combination of our mismanagement and God letting it go slightly adrift have combined to cause a malfunction. So, the distinction in some of the causes of suffering for us There are both man-made disasters and there are natural disasters. Bridges collapse because corrupt building contractors are on the take, whereas earthquakes just happen. Tsunamis kill 300,000 people and no human being is directly at fault for that. Much of our own suffering is self-inflicted by our own folly or inflicted by the folly of others. Drink driving is a cause, is of course caused by both. We can kill ourselves and we can kill those that we crash into. But for Christians, suffering may also come through persecution. In Iran in the 1970s, the Christian community was numbered in just a few thousand. When in 1979 there was the Islamic Revolution, it didn't take long before the seven leaders of Anglican, Presbyterian and Pentecostal churches and uh, the black and white young man who I can remember from being at university with him, he was the son of the Anglican bishop, they were murdered by the regime. So what have we got to so far? Suffering is an adverse consequence of free choice. This is what happened with the first human beings. Human suffering can both be natural or self-inflicted, and it can be the result of attacking the one true God through his people. If you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. But the reason I want to concentrate on this for the second half of the talk is that suffering may be God's benign discipline. It was for the Apostle Paul. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 that a thorn in the flesh to keep me from being conceited. C.S. Lewis, who... uh, was a kind of Tim Keller of about 60 plus years ago, famously wrote, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Now, with any passage of the Bible, first of all, the all-important context. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth, pioneering, establishing, and consolidating a church there. Paul moved on, and in addition to good teachers, such as Apollos, who he sent there to take his place, false teachers from Jerusalem pitched up. And they were legalists. They taught that Jesus' death for our sins in itself was not sufficient for our salvation, that we still had to sort of follow all the old sacrificial laws, even though they were completely unnecessary now that the perfect sacrifice for sins, Christ, had been made. And these false teachers who self-styled themselves as apostles of Christ, they claimed to be in receipt of extra-biblical revelations from God. And they may have sounded good, but naturally their claimed revelations were incapable of verification. We cannot observe and evaluate such purported revelations since they happen in the recipient's head, and we can't read it. Paul prefers, as a genuine apostle, to be evaluated by two criteria. One is by the content of his teaching. He would ask you, does it match that of the other apostles who had been with Jesus, like Peter, James and John? And also his character and conduct, does it match that of Christ's? Both criteria would have given any assessor the true measure of him. Nevertheless, to match these false apostles of Christ, he reluctantly spoke about his own revelations from God. And notice how in verses 1 to 6 he writes in the third person. He says, I know a man, when he's talking about himself. You see, he doesn't want to attract attention to himself. And it's interesting that he had to go back 14 years for one of these such revelations. That would be back to about 40 AD, very soon after Jesus was alive on earth. So such revelations were rare, even for an apostle like Paul. They were not the bread and butter of Christian experience. And notice also, you might be thinking, Why doesn't he go back to his Damascus Road experience? Well, that's because that, his conversion on the Damascus Road, was not a subjective revelation that happened just in his head. It was an objective encounter with the risen Christ, who he saw and who spoke to him, And what was said was heard by this band of persecuting Jews who were out to kill Christians. They were witnesses, and they reported on it. In Paul's revelation, though, from 14 years before, after probably five or six years after his Damascus Road experience, he writes about being caught up in the third heaven, or paradise. They're words for heaven borrowed from Hebrew and Persian literature. He doesn't know whether it was in the body or whether it was out of the body when he heard what he describes as inexpressible things, by which he doesn't mean that they were incomprehensible things. 
He understood them, but he was not permitted to share them. These surpassing great revelations, verse 7, could have gone to his head. He could have boasted about such things and no doubt impressed the impressionable. But he would have been promoting himself and not Christ. The very thing that he is at pains not to do. Now you may wonder, what is this thorn in his flesh which uh, he had and which he lived with all his life? People have always been curious and you may well be too. Many suggestions have been put forward, but Don Carson writes, some plausible, none capable of proof. What we do know, though, is the thorn was given to him after these revelations, so just 14 years before. And uh, they were given as a consequence of these revelations. So whatever it was, It wasn't a birth defect. It must have been something substantial because in the previous chapter, listen to the list of the things which he endured. 2 Corinthians 11, 23. He'd been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, exposed to death again and again. Five times he'd received the 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked. He'd spent the day and night in the open sea after one of those shipwrecks. He'd lived in danger from rivers, bandits, Jews, Gentiles, whether in the cities or in the countryside, whether at sea or on land, and from false teachers. He'd known lack of sleep, gone hungry and thirsty, left naked with no clothes. And he had the pressure and the concerns of all these churches that he'd founded. However, although these afflictions were a constant feature of his life, none of them was a permanent feature that he lived with every day. They were short term only. So we're looking at something that for him was very painful, extraordinarily embarrassing, and that he had permanently with him. The kind of affliction that might match the criteria of permanent, substantial and acquired could tentatively be Graves' disease, otherwise known as thyroid eye disease. I had thought of showing you a picture, but I know that some of you are very squeamish. If you want to have a look, You can go on the internet. However, most sufferers today are, of course, detected, diagnosed very early on. But you might find one or two pictures of the kind from third world countries where you get an idea of what somebody in Paul's day would have had to have lived with, which would have been big, bulging eyeballs, maybe even as big as a table tennis ball. And you can imagine how very unattractive that would look for a public speaker. And we know that Paul was criticised for being unimpressive in public. What is more supportive of this is that he dictated his letters to a scribe. And the scribe wrote these things down. And at the end of the letter, 
he would sign them off in his own hand. 2 Thessalonians 3.17 tells us that. And he once mentioned, in the earliest of his letters to the Galatians, he comments about how his writing is so big. Presumably because he couldn't see very well. Now, of course, at the end of the day, we're not told what this thorn in the flesh is. But that is the kind of thorn that we are probably talking about, that he had to live with. More importantly, though, than trying to find out what actually the thorn was, is that Paul sees it simultaneously as a work of God and a work of Satan. The thorn is a messenger, literally, he says, an angel of Satan, to try and crush the apostle. And certainly Satan is capable of inflicting grievous uh, physical damage, as he was allowed to do to Job in the Old Testament, in addition to his more normal work of moral seduction. So Paul turns to God for its removal. You would do, wouldn't you, if you had something like that? After all, doesn't God want to defeat Satan if he's inflicted it? But it is not quite as simple as that. Paul believes that this thorn came to him from God. He writes in the passive tense, there was given me. It's a divine passive, since he's really saying, there was given me by God. The purpose of this gift is to keep Paul from becoming conceited because of his experiences, because of his privileged relationship with God. Now, Satan wouldn't be interested in that as a goal. Satan would have preferred it if Paul had become insufferably arrogant because of his special treatment by God, because the devil is malevolent. The stated purpose of this gift must therefore be God's. Although the thorn is a messenger from Satan, it was simultaneously given to Paul by God himself, whose purpose in giving it was benevolent, to keep him from being becoming conceited. Don Carson makes a very helpful comment on this incident in his uh, book uh, on these verses. He says, There is a general lesson of considerable importance here. Many people go through life trying to isolate this incident or that event as the exclusive work of Satan or the exclusive work of God. You know, who's done this to me? But he says, this almost always leads to doubtful interpretations of events and may even end up in a cultic view of guidance. Certainly, this approach, he says, does not listen very carefully to what Scripture says on these matters. A classic example is Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, yet became the Grand Vizier and ensured his people's uh, continued existence. The brothers meant it for harm, God meant it for good. It was both those things. The same with the death of Christ. Luke uh, recognises the sequence of betrayal, arrest, torture, uh, rigged courts, 
and crucifixion. That that is, as he says, the hour when darkness reigns. He explicitly states that all this came about with the help of wicked men, Acts 2, and as the result of a very ugly conspiracy, Acts 4. And yet at the same time that men were doing these things to Christ, all these events came about, he says, as the result of what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen, Acts 4.28. So there is a sense in which the death of Jesus was a work of great evil and all involved in it culpable, but there was also a sense in which it was a work of God acting in love to save people by the means of his son's death for them and to form a new community. It was God's plan from the very beginning of time, the very reason why he sent his son in the first place. And yet God's sovereignty in the matter does not in any way diminish the responsibility of all those connected with Jesus' death. Paul knows that the biblical balance in situations like this, disease, accidents, repression, opposition to the gospel, and even death itself, none of these is a good thing. And all of them can be traced back, one way or another, to Satan himself. Yet at the same time, none of these ugly things escapes the outermost bounds of God's sovereignty. Paul writes in the end of Romans 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Paul knows these truths well, and he uses them in this most difficult test to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. The thorn was a messenger from Satan. There was nothing intrinsically good about it. It was malevolent. Nevertheless, it was given him by God for a benevolent purpose. Well, verses 8 and 9, Paul pleads with God that it might be uh, removed but he also acknowledges the receipt of God's grace. Paul obviously didn't enjoy this thorn. He felt it, even for him, was too much to bear. And quite naturally, he had three separate, intense times of intercession for its removal, and it wasn't removed. He concluded it wasn't going to be removed, and he accepted the situation Many years ago, there was a very gifted evangelist who had an incredibly fruitful ministry through university missions. I think they're called events weeks nowadays. He came to my own university and 164 students professed faith after the talks, which attracted up to 1,200 students each night for eight nights in a row. He was called David Watson. And then sadly, in 1983, at the age of 51, he received the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. His specialists gave him a year to live. He, however, thought God was healing him, even though it was clear that he was getting worse. 
He even said as much on Radio 4 Thought for the Day. Those doctors had given him had not given him any hope, and yet counter to his deteriorating health, he thought he was being healed. But no one can live in two minds like that. Your doctor's telling you one thing based on the evidence that's happening to you, and yet you thinking the complete opposite. Fortunately, in the last three months of his life, he came to accept the situation and died a good death. Doubtless, like Paul, accepting what he hadn't wanted to hear, for my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. John Calvin, the great Reformation leader, points out the need to distinguish between the ends and the means in prayer. The end of what Paul wanted was the relief from the thorn. And he simply assumed that the means would be the thorn's removal. God granted the end by another means. He gave relief from the thorn, not by removing it, but by adding more grace, sufficient grace. And the weaker we are, the greater the grace given which, if true, meant the self-proclaimed false apostles were devoid of grace. They were not how God works, boasting of their supposed revelations, which were incapable of verification. Well, as what um, the text says... Noting that is important. It's also important to recognise what it doesn't promise. It isn't saying that if we go through a period of weakness, that it is followed by a period of strength. It's not saying that at all. Weakness and grace are not sequential, the one after the other. Rather, they are contemporaneous. They go together. Grace is given in weakness. C.K. Barrett said, it is when he is weak, really weak, poor, sick, humiliated, despised and unloved by his own spiritual children, as well as scorned by the world, that God's power comes into view for Paul. And Paul's response as we end. Paul learns the lesson. After three serious and sustained sessions of prayer, he accepts the wisdom of God's response. He doesn't do so grudgingly, resigned to something he cannot change. His response has been carefully considered. The all-powerful God chooses to work, not through might and power, which might compel people, but through weakness, which draws people. It is through weakness that God displays his power. Think of Christ. He he did it through a crucified saviour and now Paul realises that he is doing it through him as he puts it. 
an apostle who experienced insults, hardships, persecutions and difficulties. For when he is weak, he sees the power of God more clearly at work. Tim Keller. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joys. Let's pray. And I'm going to use Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen.